You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. I turned 21 in prison, doing life without parole. No one could steer me right, but Mama tried. Mama tried, Mama tried to raise me better, but her pleading I denied. That leaves only me to blame, cause Mama tried. You've just downloaded an episode of Sectarian Review, a monthly podcast of reviews, cultural criticism, and opinion. Contributors to Sectarian Review try to think broadly and seriously, but also a little frivolously about the life of the mind in contemporary America. We've read a lot, watched a lot, and thought a bit about the world, and we're here to talk about it. Sectarian Review is a part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network, but don't hold those guys too responsible for what we say here. If something we say gets you thinking, send us an email at sectarianreview at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook page where you can post comments, reactions, and ideas for future episodes. Now sit back, relax, and hopefully enjoy another episode of Sectarian Review. Thanks for downloading another episode of Sectarian Review. This is a very special episode. Um, As you probably know, the great Merle Haggard passed away recently. And I know that it struck me, you know, rather not necessarily hard, but sympathetically. I I had all these nostalgic memories of his music and his life uh, welling up in me. I noticed on my Facebook page that Michael Farmer uh, had a similar reaction, and so I posed the crazy question that we should do uh, an immediate sort of reminiscence of Haggard, his life, and his music. And Michael, um, uh, you know from the Christian Humanist uh, podcast. Uh, Michael, you want to say hello and tell our listeners who you are? Yeah, hi. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. And uh, Michael is uh, the great uh, Christian existentialist, uh, much influencing my own thought on many things. And today, though, he has brought a very special guest. Uh, Michael, you want to introduce your guest? Yeah, my father, Mike Farmer Sr., is uh, is talking to us about Merle Haggard today. Yeah, um, it's a pleasure to be here with you. I don't know what a civil engineer is doing with a couple of college professors, but we'll make it work out. <laughs> You're educated. Uh, that's right. I went to the University of Alabama. I have a great education. You got, you got six years, six years of higher six, education. That's right. <laughs> hey, he knows Merle It's almost Haggard. like grammar school, huh? Almost finished grammar school. <laughs> yeah. And he knows Merle Haggard. That's the most important thing. So, uh, yeah, this I is... I just figured I wasn't going to be able to talk about Merle Haggard without talking about Dad, so why not just have him on here so that I can really embarrass him? <laughs> there you go. That's what sons are for, I think, so that's great. Uh, and like I said, I didn't even shoot out uh, preparatory questions for this. This is going to be quite informal, just a lot of maybe emotional kind of memory type things uh, with a little bit of the music uh, strewn in here. So if you could just sit tight and, uh, and reminisce yourself as you listen to us. I do want to start with a little background for those of you who, for some reason, don't know who Merle Haggard is. Uh, Michael, do you want to uh, give us a little bit of background about this, this great American artist i will uh, understanding that i'm going completely off the cuff here um his parents were okies they they fled oklahoma for the the greener pastures literally of california so he was born in bakersfield a city with which he's deeply associated in 1937 he has a song that says he was born in a boxcar that's not true <laughs> uh, he was born in a hospital but he did grow up in a boxcar that his father had converted into a house 
he and his father were very close, but his father died when I think he was nine. And the interview I saw with him said it made him a very angry person. And uh, he started going to juvenile detention centers, I think at age 11, and uh, was in and out of them until his 20s. When, uh, you know, the song Mama Tried famously says that he turned 21 in prison, which he did. Although not doing life without parole, he was there for armed robbery. And he decided, uh, he learned to play the guitar there, and he decided that he would rather do that than continue his life of crime. And so when he got out, he formed uh, he formed his first band, The Strangers, and the rest is history, right? Um, I guess so. I, I Am I remembering correctly that he was actually at the uh, one of Johnny Cash's concerts um, at San Quentin? Um, yes, that's, that's, uh, that is what I've heard. Yeah. Uh, I was. I assume it's true. Let me interject just a minute here. I, I was listening this morning on um, Sirius to a, a, an interview with Whispering Bill Anderson and him, and he was talking about the first concert at San Quentin, which it's not the one they recorded for the album. Mm. It's the first one that Cash did. And he said Cash and his people partied the night before, and he said Johnny did a terrible show but apologized for it ahead of time because he, he had no voice during that show. But he, uh, he met him there, and he, uh, they loved the music that, that Cash's group put out, is what he was saying. And they were friends forever, they right, became, after that. They became big friends on, uh, after he got out of prison and did some things. Yeah, they were both, I mean, are in that group of people like, you know, Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson that these sort of, uh, we I don't know if they would call themselves alter, alternative country back then, but that's sort of where they would fit in today. Outlaw, right? Yeah, the outlaw. Movement. Outlaw, yeah. But Haggard's a little bit on the outskirts of that because he's not, he never spends time in Nashville and he's not from Texas or Tennessee like those guys. He, he's he's very associated with California and particularly that, that Bakersfield sound it's called, which um, which is uh, more or less traditional country music mixed with some rock and roll. Yeah. For more modern audiences, Dwight Yoakam has sort of been the uh, the carrier of this tradition for his whole career. And uh, and I know on his Facebook page he was really um, sending out a lot of outpouring of grief here too. So, and the, the third the third part of that triangle is Buck Owens. Yes, who yeah. is I, I think really the progenitor of the Bakersfield sound, and whose ex wife Merle Haggard married as his second wife Bonnie <laughs> Owens. <laughs> yes, there was another guy, uh, and Merle Haggard was in his band, and I cannot believe I forgot his name right now. Um, oh, while I'm talking, I'll sip through my phone <laughs> while I'm looking but uh, he was in his band and um, he asked this this man who was a famous kind of Bakersfield uh, musician at the time and the name will come to me and we can look it up and if I never think of it well, I'll put it in the show notes um, but uh, uh, to if he could record one of these songs and it turned out I forget which song it was but it turned out to be kind of his Breaking uh, into that's, a... that's got to be Stuart Wynn. Yeah, that was Wynn it. Stewart. Wynn Stewart, you're Th- talking. Thank about. you very much, <laughs> Mr. It's Farmer. Called, yeah, it's called "Sing a Sad Song." Was yes, the, was the one he asked about. That's exactly right. And so, Wynn Stewart had been the kind of like uh, caretaker, or really maybe even the progenitor of that tradition. Um, he, for whatever reason, we don't remember as much. Um, Maybe that, it's because his last name is a first name and his first name is a last name. <laughs> there you go. It's beautiful music. I really do. Uh, I've 
got an album of his like singles and, and it's it's wonderful music it's very rock and roll inspired um country music that's got this traditional twang to it um and so you can totally hear buck owens coming out of him uh, very easily but merle haggard toured with him i think as the bass player and and that was his sort of entryway the other thing that's worth mentioning about haggard's life is that he spent a sizable portion of his youth as an actual hobo <laughs> jumping jumping trains and, and going all over the country like this is he he there's a reason a lot of his early songs are about hobos it's because he was one <laughs> that old sort of man on the road thing that he, i guess he i and did i hear read right that he um like trains, of course, like you're saying, because of this sort of childhood uh, association, but lived his whole life on buses, essentially. And I read somewhere, I think his son stated that he asked to be put back in the bus, and that's actually where he died. Is this true? Had you heard this? I had not. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's so beautiful <laughs> in so many ways. I just think it's wonderful. So I know that his son said that Haggard knew he was going to die on his birthday, like the week the week before he was dying, and he said, "I'm going to die on my birthday," which he did. <laughs> Stubborn old. <laughs> yeah. Stubborn he old. lived he lived his life his way right up to the end. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, one of the things I wanted to do to hear from you guys um, is just some sort of uh, kind of personal reminiscence, and, and I'll start that off. I my family's all from West Virginia, and I was born in Cleveland, and. Uh, so I grew up with country music uh, in the household. And so people like Merle Haggard and Johnny Cash and all, all of that um, 60s and 70s kind of variety of country music was my soundtrack. Um, and that really kind of set me apart from everybody else I knew. <laughs> and so, like, it was kind of an embarrassment to like country music. This is before the days of the deplorable Luke Bryan and all those sorts of things. This is even before Garth Brooks. Um, but uh, it was kind of an embarrassment to uh, – uh, to light country music. It was sort of like old person's music, nerdy music. And I kind of lived with that shame for, it was like a hidden secret. Um, and while I, I lived in New York city for a while, uh, and I don't know if anybody knows that, but, and I used to go to this little open mic night at this really hip quirky place in the East village called, uh, sidewalk cafe, uh, an alphabet city over there. And, um, one night I'm in there and they're playing Merle Haggard <laughs> before the show starts. And, uh, and I just like the first time I realized that what I had loved all my life was actually very cool. <laughs> and so <laughs> that was like a kind of a very kind of uh, redemptive moment for me. And then that's really when I started singling in on Haggard himself uh, as a truly great artist. So I, I don't know what your personal kind of associations are with him, but that's, that's one that came to mind for me. Dan, why don't you go first? Well, my personal part of Haggard, when I was growing up, when I was a teenager, and that would be in the early 60s, I was born in 52. So in the early 60s, I remember hearing some Haggard stuff, but not a lot of it because it it was not classified as much country then, and then all of a sudden it became country. His is what, like Michael said earlier, it was more of a California sound. That's why... Uh, Michael laughs about uh, Louis Grizzard calling him a classical musician, <laughs> and that's and that was kind of the way we thought about it. It was almost too polished. His his music and his voice was so sophisticated in a weird way, isn't he? He is. That that's what I'm saying. It, it's so strange when you listen to his voice. And uh, I found out today again. I 
I apologize for for kind of going off on on a different uh, interview that I heard. But Bill Anderson was asked him about it, and he was talking about Jimmy Rogers. And I don't know if y'all ever y'all know really who Jimmy Rogers is. That's who he attributes that polishness to. He was talking about that that was if you couldn't when he started singing, people would say you sing pretty good but that's no jimmy rogers you know and in in his house his mom and dad that was their favorite recording artist was was jimmy rogers so he comes from a little bit bit different side from when you think of johnny cash and when you when you think of all these country guys even some of the what they call western you know country used to be country and and the western music used to be swing music Mm -hmm. is what we used right like bob wills Bob Wills and Lefty Frizzell was more like that. And even Ernest Tubb, even though he was country, he had more of that Western to it. And he would, But Haggard didn't have a country voice when you listen to him. He didn't sound country. He sounded like he was from California. And so it, it was a little bit different experience listening to him. And it took me probably until I was in college to understand more about what Merle Haggard really was, that he was singing his life. He wasn't putting something up here. Everything he sang about was his life, even if it was someone else's song. So that's kind of where I, I came through with that. And you you watch him throughout the years, how his music changes, but how it stays the same. And, and, it, and it's kind of neat to watch that. He he never leaves his roots, but he, all, he changes. He's not afraid to put something else into his music whatever it is uh he'll put sound effects in in it and working man's blues if you listen you don't even have to listen close it's like they're they're taking a sledgehammer on steel in the background that's the percussion in that in that song i've never thought of it that way yeah listen to that next time you listen to that listen to that steel sound in the back that's that's a that's like a, a sledgehammer hitting a steel bar or driving a uh, railroad spike or something like that or like a blacksmith type sound that you're hearing there. So it's something that that he's not afraid to do. And in the sixty the early sixties, I think the other reason I didn't think he was country as much is he had way too much electrical uh, guitar in right. his in his sound. And he played it. He I mean he yeah. was the electric guitarist. And it's so a terrific one. That, that's kind of that's kind of my background of of when it was, and then throughout the years, the older I got, the more philosophical I get with uh, a lot of his songs. You know, they are deceptively deep, don't you think? I mean, they they they're about very simple things, but he always has something to say about them. One of my favorites has always been Kern River for that reason. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a great song. Yeah, and what I thought. Uh, for those of y'all who haven't heard that song, go back and listen to it. And, and basically, the, the repeat line of that is, I'll never swim Kern River again. I might drown in still water. Well, you know, uh, pneumonia is kind of like drowning in still water. Mm-hmm. Your lungs <laughs> fill up with fluid. So, you know, you, he talks. you talk about him being prophetic about his life. Even back to that Kern River song, that's basically the way he died. The night, the night he died, Victoria and I watched um, watched this old special. It was like it was from the Nashville Network from the nineties. Oh and yeah. Bob Eubanks. Bob Eubanks interviewed him. It's actually pretty good. You look at it and you think, oh, this is going to be terrible because Bob Eubanks is wearing this goofy suit. Anyway, um, he Eubanks says we've never written a song about your father, and he said, well, the closest I came was Kern River because he yeah. and his dad used to go fishing in the Kern River before his dad died, and and that song 
is about a guy losing his wife i believe it's not about directly but that's what informs that song and it it, it really made me think about it a different way i'll never swim kern river again it was there that i met her it was there that i lost my best friend Now I live in the mountains, I drifted up here with the wind And I may drown in still water, but I'll never swim Kern River again Yeah, and I mean, his songs, I mean, they don't have to be strict biography to be about him so like mama tried for example um is a perfect example i mean that's not true truly biographical but it's totally at one with his life he's very he's very inspired by that prison experience and the responsibility he felt for for what he you know put his family through so. i think that song is pretty much a hundred percent biography other than the life of the life in prison bit. though thing right right yeah, yeah. so yeah, but I mean, he sort of in, he lives his songs in really real, um, real ways. I when when uh, Mr. Farmer was talking there, I um, was remembering I was reading this week one of his former musicians, and I can't remember uh, what instrument, um, but he insisted that Haggard thought of himself as a country jazz artist um, more than anything oh, you else. Can see that. And you can totally mm-hmm. see that with the the really the artistry with which he wobbles that voice <laughs> i mean it, it's it's remarkable so um well and that suddenly has in common with, with, with willie nelson who, who's in terms of his lead guitar work really is like django reinhardt yeah more <laughs> than he is a, a country singer and in fact the they they put out an album together last year called django and and jimmy referring to django reinhardt and jimmy rogers oh perfect and, and while we're talking Jimmy Rogers, we got we got to point out that uh, Haggard actually put out a two disc set in I think 1968 or 69 of Jimmy Rogers songs, mm. where he has these really charming between song narrations where he tells you why the songs are so important. Oh, well, he's a historian too. Then, geez. Well, uh, all those guys were right. Yeah. All those guys put out records uh, of songs by their idols, and it helped. I suspect, Ed, you tell me if I'm wrong. It helped people in the '70s go back and discover Lefty Frizzell or. Uh, yeah, I, I had never heard of Lefty Frizzell uh, until uh, Haggard started talking about him. And and uh, I was, you know, then later on, he became famous in the late 70s. He had the uh, he had some of the duets with some of the modern female country uh, artists. And, and I said, well, that's that's pretty cool. He has he still has a good voice, you know. And the other one that I never really knew much about, but uh, Waylon and Willie and and Merle all talked about was uh, Bob Wills. Yeah. It was like Bob Bob Wills was the hero to them. Yeah. Haggard learned to play the the fiddle just just to put out a record of Bob Wills covers. Yes, and he did a whole tour um, with that record um, not that long ago, actually. Yeah. Yeah, that, when, and when he uh, was when he was a young man, he went to a, a Bob Wills show and met Bob Wills, or excuse me, met Lefty for sale. I'm, I'm getting mixed up here. He met Lefty for sale, and Lefty let him have his guitar and wanted him to go out and open for him in the in the thing. And uh, the guy said, "I'll oh, go ahead." Nobody came to hear the kid; they wanted to hear you. And he did two songs, and he said people cheered. And he said, "I knew I was hooked then. I knew I wasn't going to do anything but that, no matter what else I did." 
Interesting. And, no wonder he loves Lefty Frizzell so much. Yeah, he he said uh, he gave him his big break, and but you know him and Bob Wills, they they were just like heroes to him. They were his modern day heroes. I don't know how many of our listeners have never heard Bob Wills, but that is the music of pure joy. I can't imagine anybody not liking Bob Wills and his Texas Playboys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it, and it's odd. I mean, you don't think of Waylon Jennings music as being that, but he also like just adored Bob Wills. I mean, he had a song, Bob Wills is still the king. Right. And so, um, yeah, absolutely. Michael, what about you? Uh, well, I am um, dead. I, I, I may be overstating this, but I remember when I was a kid, and uh, this would have been the early 90s, you you always had the, the country station on in the mornings, and they, they played his song Rainbow Stew all the time. Am I, am I, am I, am I overstating that? Is it just the power of memory? Because <laughs> I think it wasn't what you, in the early 90s. I'm thinking what you might be remembering is a tape I might have had. They had uh, that on. And, I remember uh, hearing that song all the time, Rainbow Stew. Right. That one in uh, Big City. Yeah, which is a, another song I loved. Yeah. But Both I didn't, those, I, I, didn't I had those on the tape, and, and I played them a lot in, in the 90s. And what it was was when, when I started my company, Michael, when I quit my steady job, that was Uncle Big, Wayne. Uncle Big Wayne City was your motto. Yeah, he, yeah, he, uh, he made me a tape. And uh, some of the tape, some of the stuff on the tape was Big City and Rainbow Stew. You know, who cares? It's all going to be good. We're all going to be drinking that free bubble up and eating that Rainbow Stew. <laughs> we don't we don't need to worry about it, you know. And that's kind of like Big City. I've had enough of it, you know. <laughs> yeah, we, didn't, we didn't move somewhere in the middle of Montana. <laughs> no, we didn't. <laughs> and I didn't walk off my city job, you know. You just, just started a t- different one i'm um, so glad right. we did this i am so happy listening to these stories this is great well i um i didn't really listen to country music in the 90s it was the era of hat country yeah and uh and it was the thing to listen to in georgia where i grew up i didn't come back to country music until the the 21st century and i, I you know we did an episode on the the christian humanist podcast years ago with danny about country music and i talked about there that alternative country is what brought me back and in fact i went back to merle haggard because the christian alternative country band the lost dogs said that while they were recording their new album they were listening to nothing but merle haggard's latest which was uh if i could only fly his comeback record from 2000 oh yeah so I went and bought that and, and just listened to it over and over again. Um, and, and that is how I came to Merle Haggard rather than – I mean, I remembered Rainbow Stew in Big City from when I was a kid. I probably could have told you Mama Tried if you'd asked me, but uh, I, I didn't really come back to him until the 21st century. It, it is not until recently that I've been able to admit that some of the hat country was pretty good, that Garth Brooks had some good songs. <laughs> Well, but I mean, Haggard is one of those guys, though. I think he gets credited as I mean, because he doesn't fit in sort of the Nashville sound and he really never did. Um, he he kind of gets credited as being kind of a predecessor to the altern- the Americana sound, if you will, um, the alternative country. And so I think a lot of um, artists now who like seek to find those roots, like look to people like Haggard. Um, particularly um, for inspiration. So that that doesn't surprise me at all. And, and you know, Haggard, along with all those guys, Willie and Waylon and, and Johnny Cash, all of them had this really fallow period in the late 80s and early 90s when the hat country took over. 
and and nobody would pay for them to make records anymore. And then all, all of a sudden, once alternative country hit big, everybody was signing them. I mean, the the biggest example is Cash's American Recording, the Rick right? Rubin album, yeah. But also uh, Haggard's "If I Could Only Fly" came out on I I can't remember if it was Epitaph or Anti Records, but it's a punk label, right? You know, so so. Well, Loretta Lynn recorded an album with Jack White, right? Um, and, right, and she, yeah. And she has a new album out right now at 83. And so, yeah, like that moment when Johnny Cash worked with Rick Rubin on that first American Recordings album, um, I think began this kind of reappreciation of those folks. And to be fair, some of the Hat Country guys did their best. Alan Jackson, very famously, um, when the when the AMA, when the, uh, what is it, the American Country Music Awards? CMAs. Whatever. Yeah, some I think country the CMA, music, I think, yeah. Some, some country ceremony wouldn't let George Jones play his whole new, new song, but Alan Jackson got, got a whole slot. He stopped playing his song and played George Jones's instead. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not like it's not like all those guys were just ignoring what came before, but uh, but for whatever reason, uh, the, the old guys couldn't get a break in the early 90s. Am yeah. I misremembering that? I mean, you guys may remember that better than I do. I haven't watched award shows for so many years. I, I have no memory of that, but it, it doesn't surprise uh, 90, me. Yeah. 90s when when country became rock, what was called country rock in, in the 70s, late 70s, became country. Right. And well, you know, Garth so, Brooks's favorite band was Journey. Right. Right. <laughs> and and that's, that's what you see in today's country music, is you see more of that. You'll still see some guys that have a lot of the Merle – and influence they'll have a lot of willie's influence they'll have all the influences but they also will put them all together when you when you and they'll kind of let them be a background influence and, and because they don't sell as well in other words as as a lot of, of artists like to say they they do the sellout thing it doesn't matter what i want to sing i'm going to sing this because it'll sell a lot of records well, so Merle Haggard never wrote about cut-off jeans in the back of a pickup truck on a summer evening or whatever every <laughs> single country song is about well, right now. But but think about those guys' life and his guys' life. That yes. was their, their life they're writing about, Michael. And that's what, as you know, that's what, what most artists tend to write about is their life. They may shadow it somehow and camouflage it. But they're writing about their life and the way they see life. So what we're saying is more country guys need to spend some time in prison. I, I've been saying that for years. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I remember, Dad, maybe you don't remember this. We were we were coming back from a vacation at some point when I was 10 years old. And uh, you were you were educating everybody in the car about all the country stars who'd spent time in prison, and Mom was yeah. really upset about it. And she said, "Well, at least uh, at least Randy Travis has been in prison." And you said, "Oh no, <laughs> yes he has, <laughs> yes he has." <laughs> Yeah, he was the original cougar target, Randy Travis. <laughs> That's the way he got his big break is the, the lady he worked for in the bar restaurant fell in love with him and pushed his career. So, you know, country music's always been a train wreck. That's why Haggard had five wives, you know. Although, like, now that, now that we're talking about Haggard's love life, somebody has to mention that Bonnie Owens, his second wife, was the maid of honor in his third, his third, his third wedding. <laughs> but yeah, and she was also his. If you go back and look in the in the mid '60s, they received a lot of awards together, as duo and and group of the year and type stuff in country music. So 
it was very good for him. I think it was, they were touring before they got married. I don't know if you know that or not, Michael. Did, yeah. And, yeah. And after they were married, she was his backup singer right up to for a long time. And his, yep. his current, his last wife, I suppose you say it now, was his backup singer. When I saw him in 2008, I think, and, and uh, his wife, Teresa, was singing back up for him. Was ben, ben wouldn't be been singing then. He wouldn't have been old enough, right? His, uh, I think son. one of his sons, I think it was Ben, was playing lead guitar, and he was he was incredible. Yeah. So, you know, Willie calls his band the family, but it seems like Merle's band was actually his family. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I going back to the influence, though, he has on on – the lack of influence as it is on pop country um, that you can't really hear Merle Haggard in any of those songs, as you're saying, there is a very strong, I mean, that was like the, the, the heyday of Americana alt country music. And when you listen to Sturgill Simpson, for example, um, you, you can't miss Merle Haggard. And apparently those two recently became kind of friends. And, um, and, uh, and I think that's kind of a, a fitting sort of passing of the torch there. Um, and even though Simpson writes about, really weird esoteric things um yeah merle never never wrote a, a song about reptile aliens <laughs> dissecting you <laughs> right but it's i mean but in some way it's it's more consistent with merle haggard's music than anything on the radio i mean it's just coming from this psychedelic sort of perspective but um to uh, me Sturgill simpson sounds like exactly like waylon jennings he does sound exactly like waylon jennings i actually got a chance to see him right before he became really big I went to a taping of the Marty Stewart show, which is this little show on uh, RFD TV, and uh, and Sturgill Simpson was the guest or the guest uh, artist that day, and I got to see him, and I thought, man, he looks and sounds exactly like Waylon Jennings. <laughs> You're totally right, but but still, he's in that sort of outlaw mode, right? Yeah, um, you know, Marty ahead. Stewart and Waylon toured the last ten years or so together, right? I, I didn't know that. Yeah, I think they were they they've been touring since somewhere around 2000. Well, maybe it was 2009, 2010, but I was thinking it might have even been earlier than that. Do you mean Do you mean Marty Stewart and Merle Haggard? Yes. Because, you know, yeah, you said Waylon. Waylon died in like. Oh, I'm game. sorry. My bad. My gotcha. bad. Yeah, and yeah. I thought I read somewhere that Marty Stewart was going to speak at his funeral um so I, they were very close um and, and he's a guest on in a very early episode of the marty stewart show which i guess i should give a plug out for if you have access to rfd tv um that show is very much a throwback to um kind of the traditional country roots and and in that way it's almost as rebellious as country music can get in that it's it's very anti-popular um it's a terrific little variety show that's a 30 minute thing and i have like 50 of them on my DVR. <laughs> I just refuse to, to delete. But yeah, it's, it's a wonderful show. And you can see me on two episodes of it, actually, in the audience. So, um, Oh, in the audience. You weren't, you no, weren't a guest. <laughs> no, I was not a guest. <laughs> I did make the front row for one of them, though, so it was cool. Um, Where does that film, Danny? It, it was, uh, I don't think he filmed this year. He's been touring. I don't know if he's going to come back or not, but it filmed in Nashville uh, in some little rundown studio outside of town. Um but yeah, it's very uh, informal. Uh, if you ever get to go, be prepared for that. So, um, I do want to ask a, a question about his legacy, though. While we're on this topic, is I mean, everyone recognizes his greatness, right? And and there's not really like a a, a debate about his place in the history of country music. But for whatever reason, he 
hasn't had the broader cultural impact of, say, a Johnny Cash. Um, and in some ways, he sounds less country than Johnny Cash. And, I, and so it's curious to me is why his music hasn't had quite the crossover appeal as Cash's music has. Uh, I, and I don't have an answer to this. I'm just kind of curious as to whether you guys have thought about such things. I don't know. I, I'm not sure that Cash is re really sounds that much more country than... Uh, I mean, if you think of the Cash that made the comeback, those records aren't really country records. There's mm. not a lot of twang on them. That's true. Um, but every bit as dark um, as Cash was, Merle Haggard was from in the 60s, all those songs about death row. and <laughs> Yeah, but it, they sounded happy. Yeah. Sing Me Back Home Sing Me Back Home sounds happy, even though it's about a guy dying. Oh, Lord, that's such a great song. That may be my favorite of all his songs, actually. I love that song. Um, Mr. Farmer, do you have any ideas about this? Well, the only thing I can think of, because I remember Cash, like I said, Cash, was a lot more country in the 60s to me, even though he moved to California for a while. I think the difference is the promotion, and mm. Cash got tied up with TV. Mm. And and when you get tied up with that, even in the 60s and 70s, TV had a tremendous more amount of in, impact on people growing up than we all realize it does. And so, you know, today you don't hear of it everybody gets on tv and everybody has their own show but when johnny cash and june carter had that tv show that was a big deal that uh, you know they had a lot of people on there most people their first introduction to chris christopherson was johnny cash show. right right so it's not just the grand Ole opry type show that you would see that would come on every once in a while but it was that i think that might be part of it too is that haggard being in california he never was in the grand Ole opry very much and so that may have, have done it. I don't even know if he was a member of the Grand Ole Opry. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure. It's hard to think of him hanging out there. Yeah. Yeah, he he did, he wouldn't fit in. Let me put it that way. What What's the old guy's name, Roy Acup? Yeah. I can't see Roy shaking his hand and saying, <laughs> come on in, brother. Oh, I, although, you know, Acuff liked Willie Nelson, and Willie Nelson was at least as much of an outsider as Haggard. Yeah, but Willie came a different route he came through louisiana up to nashville and did the songwriting gig yeah. you know he was right That's out true. Of he wrote crazy so he, he kind of gets a lifetime pass with that crowd yeah, yeah he uh he wrote three or four songs that he never recorded in the 50s you know that became big hits and so he he got he got the free pass i think because of that and then you know, it, it's kind of strange when you look in the 60s you see the 60s haggard is like the is like the 50s Willie Nelson, you know, it's the guy in the suit with the nice hair and everything. <laughs> and it's hard to picture him like that. It's true. Uh, that is sort of, I don't know. I don't know where my favorite Haggard is, but those little songs, those little Bakersfield sounding songs that are uh, just so like well-crafted from the sixties are right up there for me um, with anything else he ever did after that. Um, I mean, I appreciate his whole career, but yeah, when I picture Merle Haggard, I, I kind of picture that early uh, version of him with the whatever the train conductor's hat on the album covers and all that sort of thing. Um, he was like ridiculously handsome. He was. He's a very good looking man. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I don't want to spend too much time on this. I promised you guys a short episode and uh, and, and that's what I, I hope to deliver. But uh, Michael, you while we're talking about Willie Nelson, you had posted 
on your Facebook page the video to uh, Poncho and Lefty. And, uh, and I, I just think that that is one of the singular achievements in American popular music. And I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that song um, and, and why it's so Boys tell how Poncho fell And left his living in a cheap hotel that is quiet, Cleveland's cold And so the story ends, we're told I don't need your prayers, it's true Save a few, left it too He only did what he had to do And now he's grown old Well, they did not write it. it it's written by Towns Van Zandt Right, and um, he was in the video for it, by the way Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. The the song is is a demythologization of the American cowboy legend. So you have you have Poncho who's kind of a archetypal cowboy figure wandering the deserts of Mexico. He's he's completely honest about who he is. He it's not stated but you get the sense he doesn't kill for fun. He kills only when he has to. But at the other time, on, on the other hand, he will tell you he's abandoned, and you better listen to him. And then you have Lefty, who turns him in, um, so that he can leave that lifestyle behind. And and the song is in a weird way about Lefty rather than about Poncho, because Lefty ends up in Cleveland, yes. the most uncowboy of all cities. <laughs> and uh, the 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 pivotal line to me is uh the and this is this is haggard's first line in the song because willie sings most of it but the, the poets tell how poncho fell now lefty's living in a cheap motel so the idea is that poncho gets to be part of the mythos of the cowboy and lefty is just completely forgotten and and i don't know i i don't i don't, I'm, I, I hesitate to say this because i kind of think that willie nelson especially in the 70s probably could have sung anything he wanted to but i think you needed i, th- I think he needed haggard to sing that part because it's it, it's just a different vibe from the rest of the song i, I don't i don't know how it's am i am i way off here no no absolutely i think it it, it yeah it doesn't feel like a duet really it's almost like this narrative voice entering into the into the song itself and um and it i feel like it makes the song is his i mean i i really don't care that much for towns van zandt's version of it no I, I, uh-uh. I, um it's so those and two... even even though the the haggard and nelson one is super super 80s like it oh, is yeah. it is that, glossy that opening uh, yeah the opening <laughs> synthesizer is really i would it, i could do without that i suppose but yeah but yeah, no, I think that that song has always been for me, um, maybe the pinnacle of both of those careers. I th- I just think that it's because of their own stories as well. I mean, because they, there's a kind of a, a a lack of distinction between the performer and the man that came out of this outlaw country um, thing, and they kind of owned that outlaw identity. And and I think that that song is speaking at this real life experience in mythological ways, as you're saying that both of these men kind of lived. Um, but I just find that song just endlessly fascinating and beautiful. And how many cowboy songs end up in Ohio? Yeah, exactly. Maybe that's because I'm from Cleveland. Right. And so, <laughs> and so this is uh, another, another thing for me. Yeah. Um, I've never heard you talk about that song, dad. Do you like it? Yeah, I like it. It's, it's a, a little bit different song. You know, it's kind of the, I always kind of, I always try to figure out who they were really talk, talking about. I try to to make it be real people rather than just uh, 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 whatever you want to call it a 
a hypo, hypo person that everybody it's a person type is what they're really singing about. And I always try to make it be real people. And it, it kind of, you, you th if you overthink that song, it kind of takes away from it, which I tend to do on that one. Oh, you, always you know, my, my career is overthinking things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I never, other than the, the, the good bad guy is really the bad bad guy is what it amounts to the anti-hero you the know lefty because he he he, co he ratted the guy out and and he ended up getting what he deserved you know he he ended up with a nothing life right but the song has sympathy for him yeah poncho so needs save, your save some prayers for him yeah poncho needs your prayers it's true but save a few for lefty too um yeah it's yeah. A, it's such a and, and the turn of phrase in that song is also just really wonderful too like just the little lines that are in it um are, are just like captivating to me i i just i love that song so what i said on facebook was i, I don't think there's a 20th century pop song with a better lyric than that yeah exactly it, it's just perfectly put together plus it has one of the all time great country music lines the dust that poncho bit down south ended up in lefty's mouth <laughs> right that, that's what i'm saying it it's like the the good bad guy ends up taking the fall for it yeah yeah for for not i mean for outliving the legend basically yeah um and and i think that that's uh that's something that yeah aging... it's all go ahead i was just gonna say it's something that aging outlaws have to deal with i suppose yeah in in the other part of that i always felt like there's a line in there that makes you think that what Lefty's trying to do is go back home and start over again. Yeah, yeah. Because it's not not your mo mother's only son, but the favorite one. It seems mm -hmm. you don't know who and he's that's... speaking to. Like like at the beginning, it, it, it it's that yeah. that, that second person. You're not sure who he's talking to, whether it's Poncho or Lefty. Yeah, right. Hmm. So, so it's always like I always felt like Lefty was trying to okay. Let me just turn the clock back and go start again. That's what he wanted to do. And unfortunately, when he did that, the only way to, to accomplish it was to rat out Poncho and let Poncho die, you know. So, But anyway, yeah. like I said, I tend to overthink that song. <laughs> I think that song invites overthinking. Yeah. Because yeah. so, so much is left unsaid. You know, the other thing about it is it's the end of Willie Nelson's career as a cowboy songster. Mm. He doesn't really do a lot of Western music after that. Right, right after that is when he starts singing with Julio Iglesias and singing uh, uh, <laughs> to "City all of New the I loved like before. Yes. <laughs> uh, but you know, I mean, throughout the throughout the seventies, he had all these cowboy songs. Yeah. Well, yeah. That, here is it always cowboys. I mean, "Redheaded Stranger" is like, I mean, another American classic. I mean, it's it's a extended cowboy opera, and uh, you know that should be a that album itself should be a subject of a pet a podcast. By the way, um, um, I always figured we'd do it when uh, when Willie finally dies, but he might outlive us. <laughs> he seems to want to. <laughs> He's making a good case for weed, I think, um, um, <laughs> by living so long. Um, Hey, Worth pointing out, by the way, Merle Haggard's last single was a song with Willie Nelson called Everything's Going to Pot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've already I guess I want to finish on this. I, I've already stated that my favorite Merle Haggard song is uh, Sing Me Back Home. Um, and I just, you know, I think I've spoken enough about that. What about you guys? I, I haven't. I, I wanted to I wanted to share a story about seeing me back home it's okay. a true story i mean he doesn't actually get to sing for the guy of course right but uh the the it, it is his uh he he wrote it based on a, his cellmate and his cellmate's name was Jimi hendrix 
obviously not the Jimi Hendrix who doesn't get put to death in San Quentin, but I heard him talking about it. Yeah, someone's name was Jimi Hendrix. Oh wow, that's amazing. <laughs> that's that's amazing. All right, well, another nugget of uh, knowledge here at the Sectarian Review. Um, so, uh, Michael, what about you? What's your favorite of his work? Yeah, it's it's kind of difficult. You know, Michael, I'll tell you that my favorite song depends on the day of the week a lot of times, <laughs> not only from a, an artist, but an, uh, a period of favorite song. Um, I, was, I was thinking along the lines that uh, about uh, Big City, but then I heard something they played this week that I hadn't heard in a long time, and it's called Brandy. Oh, that's a great song. Oh, and so this week, I I think that one's my favorite one this week is Brandy. (laughs) Excellent choice. And, you know, you you pick all these songs out and you start listening to them and you say, wow, I'd forgotten about that one. I would say I really, his best vocal performance, if you ask me, is Misery and Jen. Mm. Yeah. Like, like that, that is such a wonderfully subtle, sad vocal performance. And in the eighties, right? That's a later um Hagrid It is, yeah. 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 And and better I think than a lot of his eighties material. I mean, his big hit from the eighties is uh I Wish a Buck Was Still Silver or The Good Time is Really Over for Good, yeah. which is a fine song, but it's Haggard we haven't really talked about this. It's Haggard in one of his uh very, very conservative modes. So famously he does Oki from Muskogee, which is very anti countercultural. It begins that uh, we don't smoke marijuana in Muskogee. Yeah. Although he told an interview that's the only place he doesn't smoke it. <laughs> well, I, I'd read that there was some smoking going on while that song was being written, actually. So, yeah. I'm, sh- I'm sure. Yeah. And, but, I mean, the, the nadir of his career uh, for me is, uh, is uh, the fight inside of me. Mm. But, but um, anyway, Misery and Jen comes from the same era as Are, Are the Good Times Really Over for Good, but I think is a superior song because it doesn't try to do anything but be sad. But here I am again, mixing misery and gin, sitting with all my friends and talking to myself. I look like I'm having a good time, but any fool. Can tell that this honky tonk heaven really makes you feel like hell. Um, and the the other one I'd point to is is from his comeback album, "If I Could Only Fly." It's the very first song, "Wishing All These Old Things Were New," which mm. also plays on that same are the good times really over for good feeling? Except this time, the times he's nostalgic for are the nineteen. 19- 80s when he could do as much cocaine as he wanted without having to worry about it and the song somehow makes you feel sorry for him for not being able to snort cocaine anymore <laughs> it's kind of amazing yeah uh i actually don't know that album very well i know of it but i've never really listened to it i'll have to definitely look into that it's worth listening to if only to hear this song he writes his children about his time in prison mm. and how and how he he had hoped they wouldn't find out about it but knew they would yeah because when your dad's Merle Haggard, how do you not find out he was in prison? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, we, I guess we should have talked about the political stuff. I think what is one thing that's so interesting to me about him is that he's really difficult to tie down to a political position. I mean, the same person that wrote that those anti 
culture, uh, anti-counterculture songs, um, wrote a campaign song for Hillary Clinton, right? <laughs> Did he really? I didn't know that. I think in 08. And, and so, I mean, the, the, he's notoriously difficult. And I think that's what makes him so interesting. Um, I, I'm looking at a picture of him actually while we're like recording this. And, and I, it's, it, it's really a, com a complexity there that if you listen to those songs closely enough, you get a sense of the complexity of this man. And I, I think I'm very hesitant to stick him in a, a neat uh, cultural political box um, because I just don't think the evidence holds <laughs> to, holds him in any one. And so I, I think in some ways he transcends all of that. Uh, and, and I think that's why we um, miss him already. So um, guys, I really, really appreciated this conversation. I, I want, I just on a whim thought this would be a good idea. Mr. Farmer, you were outstanding. I think you should be a regular guest on, on any podcast that'll have you. Uh, I think you were terrific. So. I well, told you. Appreciate it. I told Victoria we were just going to give you your own show on the network where you can talk about whatever you want. <laughs> I'd, I'd subscribe. That would be dangerous. <laughs> talk about guys whose political positions are hard to pin down. <laughs> well, I appreciate what, that. What, what political? What is my political position, Michael? <laughs> Jeez, I don't know. <laughs> Whoever makes you least angry. <laughs> that might be it. <laughs> Well, guys, my my political position is none of the above. If you had a guy <laughs> named none of the above, he would probably win. You were ahead of the curve on that one. I think that's a lot of people's positions in 2016, but you were saying that back in the 90s. Yeah, we've all caught up to you now. <laughs> well, that's so, great. Like an old Jewish man, you know, walking around in your Bermuda shorts and black socks and complaining about the government. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, you can always listen to Michael Farmer on the Christian Humanist podcast. Uh, they have always done great work and will always do great work, I know. Uh, Mr. Farmer, we hope to hear from you again. Um, and uh, if you haven't uh, subscribed to this podcast, Sectarian Review, please do that and uh, give us that review that makes more people listen to us. Um, so for Michael and Michael's dad, Mike, uh, we uh, wish you adieu and uh, we'll send you out with some Merle Haggard here. The warden led a prisoner down the hallway to his doom. And I stood up to say goodbye like all the rest. And I heard him tell the warden just before he reached my cell. Let my guitar play in friends my request let him sing me back home the song I used to hear make my old memories come alive take me away and turn back the years